Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to, uh, to Psalm 132. It's on page 519 uh, of the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob Miles. My wife Jane and I have been uh, members here for quite a while. Uh, Larry asked me to, to share how long I've been walking with the Lord. Um, Jane and I were talking about that this morning. I think like some of you, uh, I don't know how long I've been walking with the Lord truly. I don't know when I first had saving faith. I do know that there were times when God humbled me in my life. I can think back on those times when he showed his character to me. Uh, but I don't know the decisive time when I had saving faith, but I know I stand here today by his grace with faith. And he did that work in me. So uh, that was just great to think on this morning. I don't know the time, but I know he did it. And I know that that's a miracle. So amen. All right, Psalm 132. I'll read for us a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his, to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this great word that has come to pass in so many ways. We pray, Lord, that we would receive your word now as Larry comes up to declare your truth. We pray that you would soften us. Lord, we all have pride uh, that's, that is with us now, uh, our flesh that wants to exalt ourselves and, and belittle you, and that is not of you, Lord. And so we confess that to you. We pray that our flesh would be put to death as we hear your word, that we would humble ourselves, 
and that we would receive what you have to say. So please soften our hearts, Lord, we pray. We, we need you to do that. And so we ask that you would do it, that you'd be pleased to do that, and that we would be blessed this morning through the preaching of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, that was a challenging psalm to understand. I would have, I would have empathy with uh, those of you who, as Rob was reading the psalm, just kind of went through that. I was like, what, what is he talking about? It's a psalm, Rob told us, it's a psalm of ascents. And uh, you remember, maybe you're growing weary of this reminder, but after next week, there'll be no more reminders of this because we'll be done with the Psalms of Ascents. But these Psalms of Ascents are categorized there for those 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, and they were songs, most likely it's understood that they were songs that the pilgrims would be singing who would be traveling from wherever they lived to the city of Jerusalem at, at one of the three appointed festivals where the people of Israel would make pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. And they were going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem sat high on a mountain. And so you were always going up if you were going to Jerusalem. And so these psalms of ascents were the songs that the people of Israel would be singing in praise to God on their way to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And, and Psalm 132, the one that we are looking at this morning, is uh, by far the longest of the Psalms of Ascents, and it is perhaps the most difficult one to make sense of. What's all this about an ark, and uh, Jacob, and a son of David sitting on Israel's throne, and footstools in Zion, and priests clothed in righteousness, and a horn sprouting? It's reading this psalm is a little bit like, re I mean, the words are in English, but it's like reading a different language. And I was reminded as I looked into this psalm, I was reminded of something I had read years ago. I, I forget, I think the source was John Piper. I'm not entirely sure about that, but, but it, it has been said that raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is harder but you might find a diamond. And as I read this psalm, it hit me, there's a diamond here, even though we need to do a little bit of digging to uncover it. The diamond, if you will, the way I would summarize the basic message of this psalm is in this little sentence. God shows himself to be faithful to us by fulfilling his promise to David. That's the diamond. That's what I want you to keep your eye on. God shows himself to be faithful to us by fulfilling his promise to David. Uh, Christian brother, sister, what is it that makes it most difficult for you to trust in God? 
That may be something right now, this week, happening circumstantially that is just shaking your faith. Maybe that's something bigger picture. What is it that causes you to doubt, to have a difficult time trusting the Lord? This psalm is not going to make that trial go away. But I do pray that its truth will strengthen your confidence in the faithfulness of God in the midst of whatever it is that is causing you to be weary and faint-hearted in your pilgrimage to the promised land that is our heavenly home. Uh, To help us grasp the teaching of this psalm, to help us grasp that main point that God shows himself to be faithful to us by fulfilling his promise to David, I, I think we need to consider the history that it recounts, the history that this psalm recounts, and the hope that this psalm anticipates. Uh, That's how we're going to find the diamond. We need to think about the history that it recounts, and we need to think about the hope that it anticipates. Uh, Verses 1 to 7 of the psalm are recounting some of Israel's history, specifically some history from the life of David. His longings were told there in verse 1, his hardships. And it doesn't doesn't seem that the hardships in view here were the many threats. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with David's life, uh, you know that he experienced much hardship on his way to the throne. His life was being hunted by King Saul. He was on the run for much of his life. I don't think that's what's in view when it's talking about the hardships. I think it has to do with what's recounted right after that mention of hardships. It has to do with the the labor and the toils that David expended in ensuring that the Lord was worshipped properly amongst the people of Israel. That's what the rest of the the little passage there, that's what verses 2 and 3 and 4 are describing this longing that David had. It says he was, he was sleepless. He had such a, a deep, an unrest, a longing desire in his soul for God to have a proper dwelling place amongst God's people so that he would be worshipped rightly and purely. And, and, and what provoked this longing in him freshly was the recovery of the ark. That's the uh, the it referred to there in verses 6 and 7. Right, we heard of it in Ephrata. That's the little town of otherwise known as Bethlehem. Little, fairly insignificant town until someone came along and was born. Okay, but we'll get to that. It was found in the fields of Jair. That's talking about the, the ark. This longing there in verse 8, return to your resting place, the ark of your might. And that recovery of the ark and its being brought into the city of Jerusalem was recounted in 2 Samuel 6, the chapter right before what Gail read to us from chapter 7. Are you, beloved, 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 beloved believers, we're digging, Okay. We have to dig into some Old Testament history if we're going to really find the diamond. I don't want you to have shallow comfort in the faithfulness of God. I want you to see how rich and strong and deep this confidence can be because of its rootedness in the history of the people of God. Remember about the ark, okay? God made a covenant with Abraham. I have to go all the way back to Genesis. I'm going to get the pace moving, but 
God made a covenant with Abraham. He was going to bless Abraham and Abraham's offspring. He was going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his family. And, and yet that nation that came from Abraham was in the book of Exodus, an enslaved people. And God brought them out from Egypt by his mighty hand. And during their time in the wilderness, journeying out of Egypt, he uh, instructed his people to build a tabernacle. And within that tabernacle was to be housed an ark, which is basically a big wooden box that would be the special place where God's awesome glory would reside on planet Earth amongst the people of Israel. The, the ark was such a sacred thing that, that when, because of the arrogance and the presumption of the people of Israel, when the ark was captured by the Philistines in battle a little later in Israel's history, it was said, when the ark was captured, it was said that the glory of Israel had departed. That's how significant the ark was. And even when the ark was dramatically and miraculously restored, it ended up in a remote village called Kiriat Jerim, or also known as Jar, which we read there in verse 6. It was housed there, and it was largely forgotten by the people of Israel for about 20 years, until David ascended to the throne of Israel and subdued all the enemies of Israel when he had peace in his kingdom David remembered the ark, and they brought the ark from Kiriat-Jerim into the city of Jerusalem, and it was a jubilant, festive occasion. That goofy song, I believe it was from the 90s, where David said, I'll be even more undignified than this. Dude, I'm not going to sing that song, but I know that song. Some may say it's foolishness, but I will become even more undignified. It was, it was such a jubilant celebration because the glory of Israel was returning to the city where the king of Israel was now reigning. And so this was a big deal. And it, it leads David to the conviction. This is the conviction where we picked up in 2 Samuel 7, as Gail read it to us, I've got to build a temple. I've got to build a house. This is crazy for me to be living in an elaborate palace, but the ark of God, the residing place of his glory, is just living in this simple tent. And so David toiled laboriously. That's what's being referred to in verse 1. Remember the hardships he endured. Even though God came to him through Nathan, as we heard read aloud, and said, it's not you, David. You're, good idea, good desire. You're not the one who's going to do it. Your son is going to do it. But even with that word that his son was going to do it, David toiled for the proper and pure worship of God. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if you want to review this later today, you could. If you were to scan First Chronicles chapters 21 and 29, you see a little bit of the great pains and preparations that David took to make sure that everything was in the right place for his son Solomon to get to work building that temple when the time was right. 
It says, it sh- you can see there in those chapters how he bought a plot of land for the temple, how he gathered the materials, and how he organized priests and treasurers and a military to protect it. And he, had, he gave detailed plans, basically like a blueprint for the temple that he passed on to Solomon. And then he collects more materials, and then he gathers the people, and they take up an offering, which I alluded to uh, earlier when we received our offering. He was laboring to see that this temple was built even though he wasn't the one who was going to do it. And I'm going to pause here, even though it's not the main burden of this passage. I I do think there's something that we can learn from David here. There's something that, that he models for us that we can, filled with the Holy Spirit, resting in Jesus, that we can aspire to. What keeps you up at night, brothers and sisters? To, to what are you giving earnest, diligent toil? Is it anything bigger and higher than simply carrying out your own life agenda? Or is what, what keeps you awake, what makes you longing and restless and laboring, is to see that God is rightly honored and praised? And not just in your life, but in the life of generations after you. See, that's something that really impressed me here in, as I was thinking about David and his, his toils and his labors, is that he was laboring for the pure worship of God to see a dwelling place for God that was built, even though he had been told that he personally would not live to see its completion. But he kept laboring for it. And I think that's a good word for us to labor. We have it written in our church's membership covenant that we will give ourselves to the faithful transfer of the gospel for future generations. Whether you're actively raising children or not, we have a longing, do we? I hope you do. I think this is how David instructs, his example instructs us to have a longing and a laboring for the faithful worship of God for our children and for our children's children, and for their children, and for their children's children. He labored for something bigger than himself. Now, we could double-click there and preach a sermon, but I have to get to the matter at hand, which is Psalm 132. Those are some of David's hardships. And they, they frame the prayer that is prayed in verses 8 to 10. You with me in Psalm 132? There's a diamond we're digging. This prayer in verses 8 to 10 is repeated almost verbatim in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, which marks the occasion after David was dead and Solomon does the work of building the temple. In 2 Chronicles 6, we see Solomon at the dedication of the temple and Solomon prays these words. I'm going to read you 2 Chronicles 6. 41 and 42. You just look there at Psalm 132 and see how similar it is. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant." 
And on that day, we're told, when Solomon prayed that prayer at the dedication of the temple, we're told that fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the people of Israel who were gathered there on that day, they bowed their faces in worship and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It looked like all the promises of God that were made to Abraham were all coming to culmination there on that day when the dedication of the temple happened. And yet, and, this, and I want you, I mean, this is where we, we're, we're, we just made a big, pro, I, I don't do much digging, okay, but we just hit something to help us understand how this obscure psalm has something to do with your life. Because this looked like this great time. And yet the pilgrims who would be journeying up to Zion, to the city of Jerusalem, in the years after Solomon's reign, they would have known that this glorious age that seemed like it was coming to fruition at the dedication of the temple had given way to immorality and then division within Israel's kingdom, and then the destruction of Jerusalem, and exile to a foreign land. And even after the exile, the people of God returned, but it was a very lackluster return, and they rebuilt the temple, but it was such a pitiful, uh, by comparison to the first one, that the old people who remember the first one, they just cried, because it was nothing like the glory that they had known. And there was, even after they returned from exile, there was no king reigning on David's throne. So they would, have, they would have been singing, going up to Jerusalem, singing this song, remembering this glory, praying these prayers, and not seeing any fruit of God actually still being involved in the lives of his people, fulfilling the promises that he'd made. Israel's history, subsequent to the dedication of Solomon's temple, called into question whether that strong oath that the Lord had sworn in response to uh, David's oath would actually be fulfilled. And that's just a little bit more of the history here that we need to observe. Do you see verse 11 of Psalm 132? The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. When God makes a promise like that, it's absolute, irrevocable, it's sure, and it's certain. God does not lie. When, when Almighty God, when the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, when he speaks, his word will happen. Kids, Kids, I wonder if you've, if you've ever had a situation like this happen at your house. You're, you're asking maybe your parents something, like, can we have dessert tonight? And one of your parents says, maybe, I'll think about it. But what you heard your mom or dad say actually was, I, I absolutely, as sure as God is alive, as surely as the sun rises up in the morning, you will have dessert tonight. Has that ever happened to you? Something like that. I mean, you probably didn't think about it exactly like that. And you say, but mom, you know, but mom, and then, and then maybe dessert doesn't happen. And you say, but, but mom, you said we would have dessert. 
No, actually, they just said maybe. It's a possibility. This is not a possibility, kids. This is not a, a possibility, adults. When God says, I'm going to put one of the sons of your body, David, on your throne, it's going to happen. He swore to David a sure oath. If there's anybody that doesn't need to swear an oath, it's God, right? But he does. For, for David's sake, for our sake, he takes up an oath. He says, I'm not just making a promise, but I'm swearing to you in an oath. I will put one of David's sons on his throne forever. Bank on it. It's a sure oath. It's happening. But verse 12 says there's an if. Something has got to happen. So he makes this sure, absolute, unwavering promise, but there's a, a condition to it. If your sons keep my covenant, you will not fail to have a son sit on your throne. But what did, I, what did we just see a minute ago or two is David's sons were a mess. Even Solomon became a mess and gave himself to immorality and idolatry. David's sons weren't faithful. And so the nation endured judgment after judgment. And for centuries after Israel's last king, there was no son of David ruling on the throne. They were a nation of captives. They were a nation of exiles. Even when they were living in their own promised land, they were, they were living without a king. They were ruled by other nations. And so all this language about David's descendants being on the throne forever was being sung by these pilgrims going up to Jerusalem who had no Davidic king. These were people, this is where this psalm begins to intersect with our lives and give us wonderfully good news. These pilgrims were walking by faith, not by sight. Because it looked to them, if they had eyes to see, it looked to them like the promises of God had failed. They're singing these psalms and they're singing this eight times. Did you see it there in verses 13 to 18? I will, I will, I will, I will. Abundant, I'm going to dwell there. I will bless abundantly. I will satisfy the poor. I will clothe the priests with salvation. The saints will shout for joy. I will, I will, I will, I will. And they're singing their way up to Jerusalem. And it wasn't happening. It didn't look like it was happening. They were singing by faith. And that may be where some of you are right here today. You, you know the rich promises of God that he's made in his word. And you know the desires of your heart that you've lifted up to him in prayer. And I'm not talking about goofy prayers like, Lord, help me win the lottery. I'm talking about prayers that seem to accord with God's promises. Prayers for the salvation of, of loved ones. Prayers for growing holiness in your own lives. Prayers that, that oppression and evil in our country and around the world would, would be thwarted. And we're praying. And we, you don't see the promises being fulfilled. You don't see your prayers being answered. What do, you, what do you do? You live in the way that these pilgrims lived. You walk by faith. So what an enormous expression of faith this was in these pilgrims for hundreds of years making this journey, singing these songs with no tangible evidence 
that God was actually still working for their good. That's where some of us are living. And it's, it's right here that I think we bump up against this diamond. That what the psalmist hoped for, what the pilgrim people journeying to Jerusalem were longing for and singing about in the absence of any concrete evidence that God was actually still at work in their midst, what God had promised them by a sure oath and an unwavering covenant commitment concerning an obedient son to sit on David's throne and an eternal dwelling place and abundant provisions and righteous priests clothed with salvation and saints shouting for joy and a, a strong horn sprouting and a crown shining and the enemies of God subdued what all that God had promised he has fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ oh we, we read in verses 13 to 18 I will I will I will I will and the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem in the first century were saying but it hasn't happened but we say in Christ he did he did and he will what, what a word it is from the, from the father of John the Baptist when his mouth, when his tongue was loosened and he could speak and he blessed the Lord saying that God had visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You know, this is the very first thing we're told about Jesus in the New Testament, right? Matthew 1, 1, the very first thing we're told about Jesus, the book of the genealogy, this is Jesus, this is his genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The coming of the Messiah into this world, the sending of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God's own son, is the fulfillment of God exalting the horn of David. So that all of that waiting and all of that wondering, all that singing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem was fulfilled in the coming, in the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world. Now we celebrate it all. We just passed through Christmas, right? We celebrate Christmas and we sing these wonderful things. And, and, and for many of us, I mean, we love the time. It is the most wonderful time of the year, some of you think. Okay, I was somebody talking to somebody this week. They're like, why did you say that it wasn't the most wonderful time of the year? That was on Christmas Eve if you weren't here. I said, yeah, it was not exactly what I was trying to say, but we love it. We love to get into the Christmas spirit. But, but sometimes we can miss what it would have been like for those pilgrims of God in the first century with, with parents sharing stories with their children for years, for decades, for centuries, sharing stories about Abraham and Moses and David and these promises and this kingdom. And you could, you could imagine perhaps some kids saying, when? I don't see it. I, where's the king? You keep telling me the stories, but nothing seems to be changing. And, and perhaps a faithful Jew in that time saying, I, I know it looks bad. I know we don't see it, but God will keep his promise. He will keep his promise. It must have seemed for many years, for many even centuries, that they were just telling each other idle tales, make-believe. And yet we celebrate Christmas, we, there, Christmas is a thing because it happened, because he did it. 
Not in some fairy tale, not in, uh, not in, in make-believe fairy tale land, but in real history, real blood and guts, the Virgin Mary pushed out the Son of God and the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. That's what she was told before she even conceived the Lord Jesus by the supernatural work of the Spirit. The angel Gabriel said to her, Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God always keeps his promises. God shows himself to be faithful to us by fulfilling his promise to David. And when I say us, that's an expansive us. That is not just a household of David us. That's not just an ethnic people of Israel us. That's a worldwide us. That's why I called us to worship this morning from the 55th chapter of Isaiah, that, that wonderful invitation to the thirsty. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Here, he says, that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And if we had kept reading there, which I am now going to keep reading, you would see that that promise, that steadfast, sure love for David was not just for the people of Israel, but it was for people from all nations. Behold, the very next verse in Isaiah 55 says, I made him a witness, that is David. I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold you. Now he addresses David, although David's been dead for several hundred years. This is the son of David being talked about. You, son of David, who we now know as the Lord Jesus, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Oh, the whole world is being invited. Come and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and you can join into this sure and steadfast love for my son, David. You can enter into covenant with me. And if we're still wondering, well, what do I do? How does that happen? Isaiah 55, 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Beloved, sin is exceedingly bitter. But in his kindness, the Lord has made a way for sinners to return to him and to find abundant pardon for their sins through his son, David's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when the angel appeared to those shepherds, he said, fear not. The angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
If sinful people, sinful Jews, sinful Gentiles, if they're going to dwell in covenant with the holy God of Israel, we need a save, we need a rescuer from sin. And so the Lord Jesus came to us and lived a life of perfect devotion to his heavenly father, the life that we've failed to live. And he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice, as a substitute for those who had rebelled against God's righteous rule, paying the price for our sins and rising again to secure abundant pardon for all who repent and believe the good news. All those who turn from sin and who seek refuge in the Lord and his anointed risen King Jesus are joined with David into that everlasting covenant of sure, steadfast love. And all those rich promises in Psalm 132 verses 13 and 18 are the inheritance of the people of God in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the, the day is coming when Jesus makes his return that he will say the dwelling place of God is with man. He will rest with us. He will dwell with us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and the saints in the land will shout for joy and there will be no sorrow and no suffering and no pain and no death to interfere with our joyful shouting. There'll be no need for the, the, the light of the sun because the lamb himself will be our lamp. And we will, there will be a horn of salvation. We will be protected forever by the strong power of our God and all of his enemies and ours will be clothed with shame. There will be nothing accursed in that heavenly land. We will rest from all of our toilsome labors and we will reign with him. God has fulfilled, he has shown himself faithful to us by keeping his promise to David. Oh, that's a diamond. I don't know how well I've exposed the diamond for you. Oh, it's a diamond though. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus, please hear these words to you from our Lord Jesus. This is in the very last chapter of the Bible. It's what Jesus leaves with you. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let one who desires take the water of life without price. As if you're here today and you've not put your trust in Jesus, Why would you be one of those enemies to be clothed with shame? Why would you do that? What hope do you have in this world, of this world turning around and becoming good? It is not a burden to submit to a king like this, to keep on trusting one who has pledged at the cost of his own life and guaranteed by his re victorious resurrection from the grave. It is not a burden to pledge allegiance to one who has pledged to you to use all of his wisdom and power all the time to do you good in all the circumstances of your life with all of his heart and soul. And that's what it means to be in covenant with God. Why would you withhold that? Why would you stay in opposition to that? 
I urge you today to lay down your self-rule and to submit to this liberating reign of Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. Come to him in faith and repentance today. And Christian brothers and sisters, I know that's the overwhelming majority of you here. I know we've had to do some digging today in God's word and I hope it's been clear. I hope it's been faithful to the word because it is a precious diamond that we have before us in this psalm. God shows himself to be faithful to us by fulfilling his promise to David and he did it all in our Lord Jesus beyond the wildest imagine of those pilgrims who would be singing this psalm, journeying towards the city of God with no tangible evidence that he was still on the move and at work for their good in their lives. And again, I just close with the fact that maybe that's where some of you are today. As it was for those pilgrims traveling so many years ago, we too walk by faith and not by sight. And so I hope that this psalm with its fulfillment in Christ, strengthens you in that long road of journeying and waiting and waiting. We, we live between promise and fulfillment, just the way the pilgrims did. But we have seen a mighty fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that reminds us that as we walk in this world as pilgrims, so often not seeing the Lord on the move as we would want him to be on the move, so often seeing our prayers going unanswered in the way that we desire, we too can sing in faith and have a sure and certain hope that God will not disappoint us in the way that he answers our prayers and in the way that he fulfills his promises and blessing to his people. How do we know it? His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. And there's times in our pilgrimage that it feels like that. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So, uh, brothers, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, I exhort you in the way that the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. In the midst of your journeying, in the midst of your weariness, in the midst of your confusion, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Until that day, beloved, may we be found walking by faith, not by sight, in our almighty and ever faithful God and his victorious son, our Lord Jesus. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is, is perfect. Uh, your words are true. They are life. They are joy. They're sweet to our taste. And Father, we do pray, as imperfect as this holding forth of this diamond has been, we pray that it has been a help to our souls. And we pray that you would keep us persevering in the midst of that long, winding 
arduous journey that we take to our heavenly homeland. We pray that you would fill us with strength to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray that we would be mindful of the wondrous fulfillments you have already worked for your people in the first advent of our Lord Jesus, even as we long for and wait for that second advent that will be the culmination of all our desires and longings. Keep us faithful to that end and help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.